Okay. Good morning and welcome everyone to the final session of our class, um, The Mission of Guilt, Confession and Repentance with Rabbi David Silver. Uh, we will, of course, be having more classes after Yom Kippur, and we have two classes that are finishing up later this week. And later today, you're welcome to join us for the annual uh, Stanley Rudolph Memorial High Holidays Lecture, which is this year titled Satan, the Evolution of Evil. So we look forward to seeing some of you there at 1 p.m. Eastern, there being on Zoom, of course. Um, so those of you who are joining us here on Zoom, we ask that you please stay muted unless we're having a period of open discussion, question, answer. And we really appreciate if you would turn on your cameras so that we can look around and see the lovely faces of those joining us here in class. If you have questions, comments, you're free to type them into the chat here. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, feel free to put your questions and comments underneath the video. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, hello. Good morning. We're glad you're here. So uh, we will be using text from Chumash. And if you have your own, you're of course welcome to dive into that. Otherwise, I will share sources on screen and provide a link in the chat if you'd like to follow along in another window. Without further ado, Rabbi Silver. Okay, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, okay, so we are approaching Yom Kippur. And the uh, service of Yom Kippur, there are actually five different services of, on Yom Kippur. And, uh, but there are certain things that are common to our service. Certain essential foundations of the Yom Kippur service. One of them is confession. And uh, the confessions are recited in each of the five Yom Kippur services. In the Ashkenazic rite, and I believe in the uh, Sephardic rite as well, so there's a short confession and a long confession. Short confession of Shamnu Bogadnu. It's alphabetic. Um, and it, it basically is just one word describing some mistake, some failure on our part. And then the longer confession, the Alchet, which is also a acrostic, a double acrostic. And it's uh, also a confession, long confession, detailing more specifically different uh, failings. And that's central to all the services of Yom Kippur. The exception being that in the final service of Yom Kippur in the Ewa, we don't have the longer confession of Alchet. We have the short one, and then we have something else instead of Alchet, which I'll get to at the end. But that's true of all the service of, y of Yom Kippur. It's one of the key pieces of the Yom Kippur service. What's interesting is that in addition to the various prayers of Yom Kippur, the evening prayer, the morning prayer, the Musaf, Mincha, and then the Iwa. There's another uh, practice, and that is that on the day, on Erev Yom Kippur, uh, just prior to Yom Kippur, in the afternoon prayer, there's also a confession. In the private Amida, in the silent Ashram Asrei, there's also a confession that's recited in the standard daily service, at the end of the daily service, the individual uh, says a confession. And what's interesting is that in the Talmud, the Talmud says that the reason it's recited before the meal, because the way it works is Minchan 
Erev Yom Kippur is typically uh, uh, said uh, before the meal. That the Mincha and then the meal, the big meal before Yom Kippur, and then off to Kol Nidre. So the question is, the Talmud says that we actually are reciting the confession before we eat, and it sounds from the Talmud West and during the meal, whatever it is, we sort of lose track of time or we, we get confused or whatever it is, maybe with the anxieties of Yom Kippur, and we forget to uh, say the confession. So therefore, the practice is to recite the confession before, before the afternoon prayer on the day before Yom Kippur. So what it sounds like is that if not for that extraneous consideration, it would have been appropriate to recite the confession after Mincha, just before Yom Kippur. And in, in fact, there is such a very common practice to recite some kind of confession just before Kol Nidre. And there were different uh, confessions that were written for this purpose. A very beautiful one, which is recited in the uh, many Sephardic synagogues, and also in a few Ashkenazic services as well, is starts with the words of Chaeli to Shukrati, that was written by the uh, Ibn Ezra, and that's quite a very beautiful confession. And the practice is just before Kol Nidre, privately that some people recite that confession. There are other confessions as well that are recited privately. So the idea of entering into Yom Kippur with the vidui, even before Yom Kippur begins, we are saying vidui. That actually, I think, is very interesting. And what it suggests, maybe, is that the idea is that we enter into Yom Kippur with confession, and we are hopeful that our confession will, uh, the confession sets us up as, as, as penitents. And then the focus of Yom Kippur is not merely to discount, as it were, or for God to overlook our misdeeds of the past year. But the idea of Yom Kippur then becomes to reconcile with God or to or to reconnect to God, or to strengthen our links with the divine. So maybe that's what lies behind the practice of confessing even before Yom Kippur starts. Before Yom Kippur even begins, there's a confession. Right at the moment that it begins, that would appear to be what the Talmud is saying. Okay, we push it a little earlier for, for other considerations, but fundamentally, and this is a very common practice, to recite a confession as Yom Kippur begins. That's the idea. And uh, I was thinking that this idea of entering into Yom Kippur, having already confessed, uh, perhaps has its roots in the core text which lies behind Yom Kippur. The core biblical text that lies behind Yom Kippur, which is not today's focus, but I'm gonna mention it now in any event, it's important to understand it. The core story that lies behind Yom Kippur is the story of the golden calf. It is referenced over and over again in our service. And it's in the story of the Egel, in which uh, Moshe, the hero of the golden calf episode, and the hero of, of Yom Kippur, actually, um, tries to reconcile God and the people and succeeds at the end of that story 
with God allowing Israel to receive the Torah a second time. The first tablets were broken by Moshe. And God gives Moshe a way uh, to, to, to reconnect to God. God teaches Moshe what we know in our tradition as the Yud Gimel Bidot, to the attributes of mercy. Hashem, Hashem, Rachum, And that formula is recited over and over again throughout Yom Kippur. And the point of that recitation, the, part, the point of God revealing to Moshe, teaching Moshe these divine attributes, largely those of mercy, uh, is a, a way for the people to connect to God. The God to whom we address then is this particular God who manifests through these yudimumidot, through these attributes of mercy. And what's interesting, if you reflect upon the golden calf story, at least as told in the book of Exodus, because there's a retelling of the golden calf story in the book of Devarim, which is different. But the golden calf episode in Exodus is that God informs Moshe when he's still on the mountain. He's about to receive the tablets in chapter 32 of Exodus. And God says to Moshe, get down, go down. Your people have corrupted themselves. I, I'll destroy them. I'll make you a nation. They're hopeless. And Moshe on the mountain actually argues with God. Moshe says to God, you can't do that. It's not right. You wouldn't look good for you, says Moshe. Would be Yechil Hashem, as it were. What will the world say? And beyond that, you made promises. Remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you would multiply their descendants, etc. And therefore, you have to keep your promise. And that section ends with the verse, by Yinachim Hashem, so God relented of the evil that God had thought to do to God's people. And then Moshe goes down the mountain carrying the tablets, and Moshe breaks the tablets, and then we have the attempt to reconcile. So what's interesting is that the golden calf episode in the Torah is not about whether Israel lives or dies, because God has already promised Moshe on the mountain, before he descends the mountain, that God will not destroy Israel, that God will keep God's promises. That's not to say some won't be punished, but God's gonna, not going to simply wipe them out. God rules. God changes God's mind, as it were. So that's not the focus. The focus in the Torah, in the episode of the Golden Calf, is not survival, but the focus is the nature of this relationship. And I was thinking that, actually, that's how we start Yom Kippur. We start Yom Kippur with, uh, with, 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 with confession on one hand. And on the other hand, we start Yom Kippur with Chonitra. That is to say, before Yom Kippur even begins, just as Yom Kippur is beginning, we have a vidu, we have the confession, and we have Chonitra. At the end of the Chonitra service, we cite the verse from the Torah, when Moshe appeals to God in the book of Bamidbar, I will forgive them as you, as you say. That's what the, the bet in the court at Kol Nidre is acting in God's stead, as it were, and saying to the congregation, we forgive the misdeeds of the past. Forgiveness is possible. So you enter into Yom Kippur 
both with a sense of the possibility of forgiveness. And you enter into Yom Kippur, one might say, already having, already having done tshuva. So the issue is not simply removing the stain of, of the sin. That is an issue, but that's, we, in a sense, are putting that aside as we enter into Yom Kippur. And the focus is then not somehow not being held accountable for the errors of the past, but the focus is to reconnect to God in some powerful way. That's the basic idea of Yom Kippur, I think, as reflected in this practice of, the, of confessing, just as Yom Kippur is actually beginning. So I just wanted to start with that little introduction to Yom Kippur, which is soon upon us. And I wanted now to look at confession in the Torah. Now, we first three weeks, we looked at confession or, or, or the absence of confession or the complications of these confessions within the narratives. And because the narratives are never simply black and white, the narratives are always great ones, are very complex, very, very complex. And uh, we saw that, especially last week in the story of Joseph and his brothers. There the confession is required from, from both Joseph and his brothers. Each one is rethinking his narrative in terms of the other. And each one has to come to terms with who they really are and what their mission is, et cetera, and how they move forward together. But actually in the Chumash, we also have Vidui, not in terms of a particular person, but one might say more from an institutional standpoint. So I wanted to begin with looking at a couple of biblical uh, texts which talk about Vidui from an institutional standpoint. And then we'll move on to, uh, to a, a story later on in the, in the Bible, in the book of Yoshua, which, in which Vidui is mentioned, and it's mentioned in the Talmud. Specifically, the Talmud mentions Vidui in that particular case of the individual. But before we get there, where do we have Vidui, Vidui, the term for confession, where do we have that in the Torah? So it appears uh, from an institutional standpoint, at least in three places. Three places come to mind immediately. And the first of which I'll mention is found in the book of Vayikra, chapter 25. Vayikra 25, excuse me, Vayikra 26. So it's Vayikra chapter 25 and 26. Those two chapters are linked. 25 is all about the, uh, the, the observance of the of the Shemitah year, it's actually is a Shemitah year now, the observance of the year, the sabbatical year, when it, once out of every seven years, the land is not worked. And then the Torah segues from the Shemitah year to the Jubilee year, to the Yovel. There are seven Shemitah years, seven times seven, the 50th year is the year of the Yovel and also many restrictions and all lands return back to their initial owners and slaves are set free. That's chapter 25. And there are other assorted rules and regulations which are interwoven with that. But when you get to chapter 26, you have in that chapter what's known as the tochacha, the admonition. That is to say, if one keeps the Torah, obeys God, fulfills the covenant, there are blessings. That's the first part of chapter 26. And then, the longer section of chapter 26 speaks about what happens 
if there's a failure to observe the uh, Torah. Um, so later on in chapter 26, the, the negative begins in verse number 14. Chapter 26, verse 14, Im lo tishlu rei, lo tasu enkoha mitzvot ha'eva. That's chapter, verse 14. And then uh, it goes on with a long series of punishments that will be visited upon the people for a failure to keep the covenant, to hearken to God's voice, etc. And it goes on and on. And Torah keeps repeating, and if you fail to do this, I will do this. One of the phrases that appears several times in chapter 26, I will smite you or punish, punish you sevenfold for your transgressions. Sevenfold for your transgressions. And this goes on and on. And the punishment essentially is you will be banished from the land. Here the Torah speaks about exile from the land. The blessings are the land produces its plenty. God walks amongst you. And the punishment is that the land will be uh, lie empty and fallow. I'm in verse number uh, 30, I can't read, I think it's 33 on your page. Etchem ezareb agoyim. Or even the verse before that, Hashimoti aniyata I will make the land desolate. And your enemies will be appalled by it. And I will scatter you amongst the nations. And she's the sword against you. Your land shall become a desolation and your cities a ruin. And then the Torah continues, Oz to sell Aretz at Shabtotela, call Yemeha Shama, the Atemba Eretz Ivechem, Oz Tishbata Aretz, Pirzat at Shabtotela. Then says the Torah, the land will make up the sabbatical years that it did not keep. In other words, because during the sabbatical year, you're not supposed to work the land. So you didn't observe the Torah. You work the land during the sabbatical years. So now you will be sent into exile and during those years where the land is desolate, Shmama, says the Torah, the land will make up, will make up for those sabbatical years you failed to keep. In other words, there's a debt to be paid and the debt will be paid the land will observe the sabbatical year. That's actually a very interesting idea. And among other things, what it highlights is that what the Torah has singled out in chapter 26, though it speaks in general, failure to observe the commandments, breaking the covenant, it talks in generalities, but when it comes to a specific failure, what the Torah picks out is the failure to observe the Shemitah, the sabbatical year, which of course is the subject of chapter 25. So the sabbatical year then stands in, one might say, stands in for all the mitzvot. It's not the only mitzvah, but it stands in, it, 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 it's symbolic of all the mitzvot. And if we think about it, it makes perfect sense, because after all, the sabbatical year at its core, is what is called the sabbatical year 
it's the Shabbat of the land. And we remember from our study of the Torah, certainly, that in the previous book of the Torah, in the book of Exodus, the mitzvah which stands out in the book of Exodus as the central mitzvah of the book of Exodus, of course, is the Shabbat. It appears in many, many settings. It appears twice in conjunction with the building of the Mishkan. It appears in the Ten Commandments at length. Uh, it appears um, in the story of the enslavement of the Jews in Egypt, where Pharaoh refuses to give them a Shabbat. It appears in the story of the Mon. You're not permitted to go out and collect the Mon on Shabbat. So Shabbat is, one might say, the central covenantal mitzvah of the book of Exodus, of the book of freedom. And now, at the end of the next book of the Torah, the Torah singles out the Shabbat around which to, I would say, describe the covenant. The covenant is represented by the Shemitah, by the Sabbath of the land. The one who made this point very forcefully is the Ramban. And the Ramban emphasizes that essentially what you have over here, and this is actually, I think, a very important point, that what you have at the end of Vayikra is a reconfiguration of the covenant of Sinai. Sinai was a covenant. The tablets are the tablets of the covenant, of the relationship with God. And that covenant was temporarily suspended or broken when Moshe broke the tablets, which symbolized the breaking of the covenant. So the covenant had to be restored. And that's the story of the golden calf and Moshe's efforts afterwards to restore the relationship. So the Ramban says he did restore the relationship, but it still has not been fully played out. And the culmination of that description of that relationship takes place at the end of the next book of the Torah, in the book of Vayikra, chapter 26, which talks about exile and return, and the mitzvah around which this covenant is, uh, is described is none other than the Shemitah Yeh. So that's an incredibly important point. I will just say in passing that in our tradition, and it's very important to remember this, in our tradition, yes, the Torah says that the, the Sinaitic revelation took place in the third month. The rabbinic tradition says this is the holiday of Shavuot. But those tablets that we got on Shavuot, Moses breaks. Moses breaks. Whatever happens to them is a good question. He breaks them. When did we get the second tablets? When did we get the tablets that, that, that are permanent, that live on with us? Our tradition says on uh, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day of Matan Torah. Let's not forget that. And it makes perfect sense because it's the day in which we are reaffirming the covenant, reaffirmation of the covenant. So here we have, first of all, at the end of the book of Ayikra, we have this idea of having sinned, you have to pay back, your, you have to pay the debt. You have to wait, you have to pay it back. You owe the Sabbath years and the land has to, has to observe the Sabbath years. But that's not the whole story. So if we continue in this chapter, keep, keep going down, chapter, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going down. More, later, later, let's find the verse, much later in the chapter. 
Let's find this verse. It's chapter 26. Um, let's find this verse. I'm not finding the verse. One second. Verse 40. Verse 40. Verse 40, yes. So it says that it talks about the previous verse talked about those that survive will be heart sick at their iniquity, and also the iniquity of their of their of their of their ancestors, And then in verse number 40, and then in exile, here we have confession. They will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, the iniquity of the fathers. They will confess it. We discussed this a couple of weeks ago, because in, in the text of our Vidui and Yom Kippur, there are two versions of it. One is, we don't say we didn't sin, and one text and one Version is We and our father's ancestors have sinned. So we are confessing, not just for ourselves, but the sins of Abotam. I gave one suggestion a couple of weeks ago. I'll give a different one today. But this is the verse where that's coming from. Because they were hostile to me. And then if you read on further, two, work, two verses down in verse 42, then God says, they will atone for their iniquity. And then he says, I will remember, given the fact that the Sabbath years have been repaid and there is confession. Given all that, says God, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and with Isaac and with Abraham, and I'll remember the land. And then the Torah repeats, and the land will be forsaken and shall make up its Sabbath years. Haim Yudzuat, and they will atone for their iniquity. And then in verse number 4044, it is, Yeafgam Zopiotam, Yeretz even in the lands of their enemies, I have not rejected them, says God, to destroy them, to annul the covenant. I am their God. And I will remember, I'll remember the covenant of old when I took them out of Egypt. I am their God. And Hashem, I am God. So basically, what it talks about is return. The admonition um, of the book of Ayikra talks about exile. Punishment for sin is exile. But it speaks at the very end of a return. And the return seems to be based on three things. In order to return, you know, there are some who think that this thing at the end of returning was a way to redact it or something. To which, of course, there is zero evidence that that's the case. Zero. There's no way to redact it. It's one piece here. And the return is, requires three things. It requires paying the debt. It requires vidui. And then, together with that, it requires something else, 
which is to remember the covenant of old, the covenant with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, or in this case, Yaakov, Yitzhak, and Avraham, and God remembering the land and the promises, and what happened when we first left the land of Egypt. I am your God. I haven't annulled the covenant, so the covenant stands. So what's interesting for our purposes here is that the vidui, the confession, in the context of chapter 26 of Ayikra, does not seem to be sufficient. The vidui accompanies something else. It accompanies the repayment of the debt. It accompanies, uh, and in this light, it accompanies the God remembering the merit of our ancestors. So we have certain credits in our account. And in light of the confession and the repayment of the debt, God will keep the covenant. The covenant is not broken. Now I mentioned this and I've spoken about this actually many times in the past. I can't get deeply into this now, a topic is feed doing. But what's interesting is that in a later section of the Torah, in fact, in the portion of the Torah that is read every single year before Rosh Hashanah, without exception, every year before Rosh Hashanah, we read chapter 30 of the book of Devarim. Parashat Nitzavim, it actually starts in chapter 29, but we read chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. Now chapter 30 of Deuteronomy is also known as the Parsha of repentance, parashat HaTeshuvah. And if you look at chapter 30, which talks about what will happen after chapter 28 of Deuteronomy is another admonition, even more terrible than the one in Vayikva. And chapter 28 of Deuteronomy after describing the horrible things that will happen, horrible suffering. And the last verse, basically, of chapter 28, the last verse of the admonition, I will return you back to Egypt in boats. On the path that I said, you will never see again. You will be sold or sell yourselves to your enemy to male and female slaves, but none will buy you, which I believe means not that none will buy you. you sell yourself, someone bought you. None will buy you out. None will buy you out. So in other words, the Tochacha in Vayikra, chapter 26, ends with return. The return is built into the Tochacha. But the Tochacha in 28 ends with, I'll send you back to Egypt, goes back to Egypt. In boats, in boats, you left there when you walked through the waters. You're going back in boats. You left with Kriyat Yamsuf. You're going back with the boats. You thought you'd never see it again, but you will. And nobody's going to buy you out. What a way to end the admonition. And then you go to chapter 30. Chapter 30 is connected to the end of 28. It's connected literarily. The word shav, Lashuv, appears seven times in chapter 30. And it talks about a return. This is the parasha we read before Rosh Hashanah every year. When all these things take place, the blessings and the curses, and you find yourself very, very distant at the farthermost corner of heaven, 
And then the Torah describes at some length for the Torah, a process of return, which begins in chapter 30, verse number one, you will consider, you will take heed, and in verse two, you will return to God, you and your children with all your heart and all your soul. And then in verse three, God returns. God brings back your uh, your fortunes, store your fortunes. God will have mercy upon you. God will gather you from amongst the nations. And talks about Vishab, once again, Vishab, twice in verse number three, God returns. No matter how far you are, farthermost corners of heaven, makes no difference where you are. And God will uh, open up your heart. God will love you. And God will place the curses upon your enemies. In verse number, you shall return. Tshuva, you return. And God will give you more blessings. Ki Hashem, for God will return in verse number nine to rejoice, to rejoice about you. God will take joy in your success. And then verse number 10, when you obey God, and the end of verse 10, when you return with all your heart and all your soul. Seven times in this section, we have the verb and maybe more significantly, four times we refer to the people returning to God. And three times the verb is used to describe God's returning to the people. And what's only interesting is it doesn't mention anything about paying debts, and it doesn't mention anything strikingly about covenant. That is to say, the covenant of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov is not mentioned. It's completely absent. It's about you and God and this connection, and it's not a simple matter of a one-step process. There's seven returns in this parasha, the parasha of Tishuvah, parasha of return. So it strikes me that when we look at the two admonitions, the Torah has two admonitions, which means it's an invitation to read them together, to compare and contrast. What's interesting is that the second admonition ends with these are the, uh, these are the uh, words of the covenant. That's the end of chapter 28. These are the words of the covenant which Moshe, Moshe uh, which God made, basically. God commanded Moshe to set up with the people of Israel in the plains of Moab. So the first admonition, as I described it earlier, is a redoing of this covenant of Sinai, the Luchot Abrit, reformulated through blessings and curses in Vayikra. That's chapter 26. Chapter 28 of Tvarim is the second covenant God makes in the Torah with the people, which is the covenant on the plains of Moab, the covenant of the book of Tvarim. And what's interesting is that in the first covenant, it talks about return. It ends with return. Despite your dispersion, I haven't rejected you. I remember the covenant of Sinai. I remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God will bring us back. 
But the second admonition ends with, I'll send you back to Egypt in boats. So what happened to the return? But the return is actually in chapter 30. Now, what do we make of the fact that the return is two chapters later? The going back to Egypt in boats, which by the way, in the Torah is Heshivcha. I will send you back, Heshivcha. And the return begins with the word in chapter 30, Vashevota. So they're obviously literarily linked. What do we make of the literary connection? And I think what we make of it is this, that the vidui in the biblical narratives, the vidui in chapter 26 of Vayikra, the confession is a, simply a recognition that we've done wrong. It's a recognition that we've done wrong, but that alone doesn't bring you back. It's necessary, but not sufficient. In the book of Vayikra, you recognize you did wrong, and you pay your, you, you paid your debt, the land will lie fallow X number of years. In light of that, perhaps God sees you in terms of the covenant because you, your confession means you see yourself essentially. You behave in such a way that you are connecting yourself to the, to the righteous, to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, to their covenant, to their path, so God will bring you back. But in the book of Devarim, that we read just before Rosh Hashanah, this is not, this is, this in, in this uh, description, God doesn't bring you back. God, God is part of the process, but you have to bring yourself back. Now, the reason for this distinction I have argued in the past is the following. And that is that the, why do we need two covenants in the Torah? Why is it one covenant sufficient? And the reason there are two covenants, basically, in my view, is because there are two different communities to which, to which the Torah speaks, which God speaks in our narrative. There's the community of those that left Egypt. They all die in the desert. They can't fully escape Mitzrayim. They want to go back. They have the slave mentality to some extent. That's the first generation. Second generation were never slaves. Second generation doesn't want to go back to Egypt. They were never in Egypt in the first place. They have a different problem. It's not about slave mentality. They have the opposite problem. They don't, they think they can do whatever they want. They think they, they, they are self-made and no one assisted them to get where they got, which of course is never the case. That's their problem. But what they have is the ability to pull themselves out of the pit. They can pull themselves out of the pit because they don't have the slave mentality. Since it's possible to do it, since it's possible to take that step yourself, or at least the first step yourself, then God says, I will send you down to Egypt in the boats. But you know something? You have now the abilities to get out of Mitzrayim. But this time you take the first step. Not like the story in the Torah where God took us out with miracles. No, you can do it yourself. Oh yes, we always need divine assistance. But the first step is, is is your step. That's how the Torah describes it in the book of Devarim. So there are two different communities. And the truth is that every person sometimes finds herself or himself in one of those two places. Sometimes we're stuck and can't get out. And sometimes we can't get out with difficulty. So sometimes we are praying to the God of Vayikra chapter 26 to assist us. 
We recognize our errors. We can't do it alone. We need some assistance. Uh, and we pray for that. And sometimes we can do it. We can take those first steps. Not alone, we can take those steps. But the vidui, coming back to the confession, strikes me that the Torah has discriminated, distinguished between the tshuva of chapter 30 in Dvarim and the vidui of chapter 26 of the book of Ayikwa. The vidui there is part and parcel of something much bigger. And in 26 of Ayikwa, that which requires divine assistance. That's the first point I wanted to make about vidui in the Bible. Now, if there are any questions, I'll take them now. And then I want to point out to a section in the Torah which plays off by Yikra 26 in terms of vidui. If there are any comments or questions, either speak up or in the chat, happy to hear. Rabbi Silver, I'm not sure I'm understanding the difference in the two approaches to tshuva in the, with, with the first covenant and the second. I'm not sure I'm understanding. Is it a good thing to, for us to feel we can take the first step and then realize that and, and do it? And that's a result of the second, the second form of tshuva, the second covenant? I'm, I'm not yes, I'm what clear I, what on I, it. What I, what I would say is that, in my opinion, the story of the Torah is about, the, the story which begins in the book of Exodus is the movement from slavery to freedom. I think what the Torah wants is for people to find themselves in a place where they can make good autonomous decisions which are in sync with what God demands of us. The truth of the matter is that we have rule books, we have codes, we have legal. But the legal codes, the rule books, et cetera, at the end of the day, can never actually tell you how to live in the sense they don't deal with any really important questions. In other words, the questions of where you live, spouse, what kind of work you do in life. There's no shulchan aruch for that. And there's for a simple reason, because there's no one answer. Everybody has a different answer. Everybody. So the point is to be to put yourself, but the, the codes and the learning does help. It creates a certain framework in which I think we can make better decisions. And the fact is, uh, the example I'd like to give is the Akeda, where Abraham finds that ram by himself. He's not direct, God doesn't say take the ram instead of, he understands, he, before he comprehends, he sees, he, under, he perceives what God wants of him. And then it doesn't, it's not necessary for God to command him anymore because he's in a place where he fully understands what has to get done. So the, my reading of the Torah is a movement from slavery to freedom. So for example, something like the king. The king in the book of Devarim is not a negative. The king, yes, you, you want a king that God will choose. You don't want a king like the other nations. But what kingship represents in the positive sense is, is people taking responsibility for themselves. The goal of the Chumash, I think, is for communities to take responsibility for themselves, to care for the, for the marginalized, to have a fair system, a system of justice, a caring system, etc. We have to hold ourselves accountable, to speak the truth, all of those, you know, very important qualities. I mean, God's qualities, MS, these are, so I think that's the goal. So yes, I think the goal was the Chumash describes the movement from slavery to freedom over two generations. Optimally, we want to be in a place where we can 
take those steps ourselves. That's why freedom is so important. Only free people can make the, the choices. We want to be able to be in a place where we can make choices for ourselves. By the way, just as a small aside, the reason I started Jerisha 40 some odd years ago was not to give women full opportunities to study Torah. I do believe in that. And I'll say quite immodestly, but honestly, I've done more than anybody else ever did. Probably more than all of them put together in that respect. And we're doing more now with this yeshiva in Israel, which raises the bar for women to learn. It's never been a yeshiva like it in Jewish history, never. But that's not why I started it. I wanted a place where people can, can speak the truth as they see it without wondering, am I allowed to say something? And it started with myself. It was very selfish. I want to be in a place where I can say whatever I want. I'm sure I say many foolish things and wrong things. Okay, now I'll stand corrected. Correct me. Totally fine. But everybody who comes in should feel they can speak what they think is true and be willing to you know, be criticized in terms of the text, in terms of evidence and all that. And that I think is, the, that was my goal with Risha. I think that's the goal of the Chumash actually in the sense of to create a community where people don't need miracles, where people take responsibility for themselves. We appoint our own leaders. We establish our sacred places. We care for our society, people around us, etc. That I think is the goal. So yes, Sim, I think that the two covenants are a process. But I, what I say is that we very often in our lives get stuck in all kinds of ways. And we're not in that place of, 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 of freedom. Quite the opposite. We're all vested in something. And the fact is that, you know, and trying to divest of ourselves of things that prevent us from seeing the truth is a lifelong project. I think that's what prayer is actually about. But yes, I do believe that there is a, a movement in the Chumash from slavery to freedom, and that the book of Devarim is about setting up your own society. Yes, hopefully in consonance with what God uh, demands of us, of course. And we have to always try to figure out what God demands of us. And a lot of that has to do with learning, our, learning the tradition, seeing how other people have behaved, seeing what the Torah and other texts, uh, texts that are central to us, their take on things. And there's an ongoing interpretive tradition. So, you know, we're constantly trying to figure it out. But yes, I do think there's a, a continuum from moving from the first admonition to the second. Anybody else have something to thank you for that uh, question? Rabbi Silber, if I, if I may ask a question. Yes, of course. Uh, I, I have some difficulty understanding uh, why uh, there is so much of conditionality uh, that uh, uh, if you do this, if you return, then I'll uh, save you, then I'll uh, make you prosper. And uh, uh, I understand it to some extent, but uh, still it uh, appears to me to be too severe that uh, uh, it uh, goes against uh, the attributes of mercy, the 13 attributes of mercy. And, uh, this is uh, somewhat contrary and that's uh, very, very conditional. Could you talk about this, please? Yeah, well, I think the question is a very good question. And I've disturbed by some of this myself as well. Um, I, I would say that, I would say that within, there's no question that within the biblical text, you have God as, 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 as you call it severe that there are punishments. God gets very angry 
even in 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 Devarim in Deuteronomy, God gets very angry to the extent that when you read the admonition, by the way, it is extreme. I mean, it's it's quite horrible. So yes, I think the question is how to balance that with the same book that speaks of God's love, etc. And the question is um, how one interprets this tradition. The tradition has many pieces to it. And I would say that's, you know, it's an ongoing interpretive tradition. I would say that we're soon upon Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur, which is for us a one of obviously these central days on the calendar, is about God's mercies. It's the focus is God's mercies. The focus of the rabbinic tradition, their interpretation, is that fundamentally the attributes of mercy, Hashem Hashem Kelrachum Bachanun, that the God that the God that we are encountering, or hope to encounter, is the God of mercy. I'll come to this at the very end. We, uh, at the very last thing I want to say before Yom Kippur, uh, yeah, is about your question, which is an excellent question. And uh, I'll tell you one story though. Many years ago, um, many years ago, Grisha uh, was, I was called up by somebody who had connections to the State Department and they wanted to hold an interfaith conference, Jews and Muslims. So I, could they use Drisha's space? Would Drisha host it? And I said, we would host it. And if some of you remember this. And we had this event and this fellow was very connected to the State Department. He brought these, this was, Drisha was the 65th Street at the time. And he brought these Imams from Egypt, Saudi Arabia. Apparently they were, I mean, some of the most important Imams in the world. And they were all there. And there were four delegates from the Egyptian consulate there as well. Two of them were women. The rest were all men. And um, they went around the room and speaking and talking and talking. And each one spoke about, you know, and what they said struck me as, you know, Islam believes in full equality of women and on and on. Everything was like perfect. Everything went around. And, and then they came to me. And yes, what do you have to say? And to, to my right was the head of the Egyptian consulate. Uh, he had come in with his three associates. And what I said was this. I said, look, we're talking about whether it's Islam, whether it's Judaism, we're talking about ancient texts. And there's no doubt that there are many things in our tradition, in these texts, which we don't resonate with and quite the opposite. Some of them we are find deeply problematic. Some of the genocidal wars, the status of women as described in the Torah and the book of Devarim, we could go on and on with this. I said, the question is not whether these texts have things that we see as problematic. That's not the question. The question and the core question is, who is interpreting these texts? What's critical is, who does the interpretation? That was my two cents. So the guy to my right, head of the Egyptian guy to the consulate, he says, here's my card, he says, you're the only guy in this room who actually speaks the truth. <laughs> I should have followed up with it, but I didn't. But, uh, and that's the truth. The truth is that these texts, which are ancient texts, which speak to a community that lived a long time ago. They're not speaking to us directly. We see them as central and they are the core text for us. But we have, we are constantly interpreting them. And the question is, how do we understand them? How is, how the tradition chooses to look at these myriad of texts. And I think what I prefer to do is to look to, to try to figure out what it actually says 
without the apologetics, then to understand how the tradition moves forward, how the tradition interprets, how should one live? Where is the focus? What is, what is essential? What is not essential? And I think if you look at the, our, our, our liturgy, to me, that's a very uh, important, if you look at the liturgy, what the liturgy focuses on, it's not upon a vindictive God. Yes, we are all held accountable. People have to see themselves as accountable. That's Rosh Hashanah. That's Zichronot. That's Yom Adin. But fundamentally, that's not the focus of our liturgy. And to me, the liturgy composed by the rabbinic tradition, our, our teachers, to me, speaks very speaks volumes about how they understood Jewish tradition as it as it proceeds through time. So that's the best I can do at this point. Maybe at the end, I'll say a couple of words about that. It's a very important question, I think how one reads these texts. There are many things in these texts that are problematic. I don't think the right way is to simply misread them or to simply ignore them. They're part of our tradition. And the question is, how does one deal with it? How does one struggle with it? How does one interpret the tradition much more broadly? To me, that's a very important question. And let me get to this, um, this tochacha, this idea of confession, connected to repaying the debt. Um, there is another text that's interestingly connected to it. And that is a little text in the book of Bamidbar, chapter five. Chapter five, Bamidbar, of course, describes the setting up of the camp. And then it says in chapter five of Bamidbar to send out of the camp people that are ritually impure. That's the few verses of Bamidbar chapter five. The continuation, and Israel did this. And then we have an interesting section in Bamidbar chapter five, it's Numbers chapter five, beginning in verse number five. If you have the Chumash, you could see it, or Safaria. Bamidbar five, chapter five, verse five. By Daber Hashem or Moshe Reimah. Daber o Bnei Yisrael, so speak to the children of Israel. Isha wisha ki yasu mikol chatot adam limomal b'ashem. If any man or Israel has sinned, lim o ma'al bashem. Ma'al mi'ilah is a term that appeared in chapter 26 of Ayikra. Confession. Vitvadu et avonam viet avon avotam bi ma'alam ashamal bi. Mi'ilah is typically understood in the Talmud as misusing something sacred. Here they translate breaking faith. If somebody and the Torah doesn't say what, did any wrong towards the fellow human being, man or woman. Next verse. The person should confess, confess the wrong that they have done. And they have to make restitution. They have to pay. So here we have Mi'ila. Here we have Vidui. Um, and here we have restitution. And then the Torah continued in the next verse, what about if the person who was harmed is not around anymore? And the person, so how, how do you pay back the money? How do you pay the debt? So the Torah says, if the person has no kinsman, no redeemer, to return the, uh, to return the, the wrongdoing, the restitution, then, it, the restitution goes to God, 
to God's representative, who is the priest, right? Apart from the sacrifice that is brought. So what's interesting is, how is it possible someone has no relative? So the Talmud says maybe it's a, someone who has chosen Judaism, a, 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 a convert who legally speaking is not connected to his or her past. Okay, Gezel Hager. But what's interesting is that it goes to the Redeemer. If you remember back in Vayikra, chapter 25, which talks about the sabbatical and the Jubilee year, what if someone was forced to sell herself, himself into slavery or the land? Then the goel, the redeemer, is to redeem the land or redeem the person. So what it sounds like is, but if there's no redeemer, then what happens? Suppose there's no redeemer to buy back the land you had to sell. Then the land returns in the Jubilee year. One might say God is the redeemer. And in chapter 26, in the admonition of 26, what it speaks about is going into exile and return. But the one who brings us back in ch chapter 26, the goel is none other than God. So what's interesting is that this particular section in the book of Bamidbar seems to play off, right? Talks about if one does any wrongdoing, how do you make restitution? If you've done wrong, well, you've got to repay the debt. But in addition to that, there's confession. And here the Torah did not specify the particular thing you did wrong. It says, Mikol chatol tadam, any, anything, like anything you did wrong requires a veto. So this could possibly be a source if there is such a mitzvah to confess. Some of the uh, interpreters, medieval interpreters, see this as the source that there's an obligation to confess as part of repentance. But here, once again, the confession comes in conjunction with something else, with the repayment of the debt. And here, if there's no one to give it back to, then God steps in through God's uh, messenger, through God's representative, who is the priest. So this is, again, we have Vidui over here in a very striking way. And by the way, there's something else that is extremely interesting, but not our topic, namely that the very next session, section in the Torah, right afterwards, is the story of the Sota. The Sota appears next. And what that suggests to us, and the Sota begins, the Sota, just two, three verses later, talks about a woman who is Mo'el Ma'al, who has trespassed. It uses exactly the same term, which suggests, I think, to us that the, the Torah wants the Sota story, apart from it being read as a particular ritual, but the Torah wants us to see the Sota as representing God and Israel that the sin is not just something you did wrong, but it's a kind of betrayal. It's a breaking of a covenant, which means a trust. A trust has been set up as a relationship, a trusting relationship. And the breaking of that is what the Torah calls me'ila. And what's interesting is that Rashi, Yom Kippur is all about the golden calf. And we remember that after Israel makes the golden calf and Moshe comes down the mountain and he burns up the golden calf and he says, and he, and he made them drink it. And Rashi comments, like a sota. So there they're picking up on the sota as representing a breach of trust, in this case, between God and Israel. And Moshe makes the people take responsibility for it. So here we have vidui in the second instance. And the third instance where the Torah talks about vidui is of course on Yom Kippur itself. The Torah says that the amongst the special sacrifices in chapter 16 of Vayikra, which is the Torah reading 
for Yom Kippur are the two goats. The two goats, one of which is brought in the Holy of Holies, and the other goat, which is called the scapegoat, which is sent out into the desert, bearing Israel's sins. So the Torah says in chapter 16 of Vayikra, let's find that verse, Vayikra chapter 16, uh, verse number, let's find that. Um, Chapter 16, verse number, verse number 21. Vayikra 16, verse 21. So Aaron shall put both his hands on the head of the live goat we call the scapegoat, and confess over it the iniquities and the transgressions. I will note B'nai Yisrael, Pishehem l'chol chatotam. It mentions three different terms for sin. Avon, Pesha, and Chet. Avon, Pesha, and Chet. And Aaron places both his hands on the head of the goat and confesses. Aaron confesses not for himself in this instance, Aaron is our representative, the people's representative to confess the sins of the people. And the goat bears the sins of the people and carries them off into the desert. This is the goat that's sent off into the desert, the so-called scapegoat, Yisrael Azazel. The other goat that is brought in the Holy of Holies, actually, that goat, as the Torah describes it, and the Milgram emphasized this, but it's actually simply the plain reading of the Torah. The Torah says that the atonement of the goat that's brought in the Holy of Holies is less an atonement for the people, but rather an atonement for the temple itself. The chiper ala kodesh. Aaron is to purify the holy. The holy, the holy of holies, the altar. The temple itself has to be purified. So the two goats do two different things. The scapegoat and the confession that bears the sins of the people to the desert. And the other goat, the Yom Kippur ritual, is largely about cleansing, purifying the, uh, the, uh, the, the temple itself, the Mishkan itself, the Migdash itself. Um, that's that verse right there. Chiper et Mikdash HaKodesh, that verse. The Chiper et Mikdash HaKodesh, v'yet Omoed v'yet HaMizbech Yichaper. He shall purge the innermost shrine, the tent of meeting, that's the Mishkan, the altar, and make expiation for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. And this is Yom Kippur, once a year. So central to it is the expiation, is the atoning, or might I say the purification of the temple. I wanted to explain this. Many have said this, and it's the plain reading of the Torah, but I wanted to explain it in the following way. In the Yom Kippur service, we have only a few minutes, we have 12 minutes. In the Yom Kippur service, so the Yom Kippur service has many, many interesting features to it. And one of them is the ancient practice, ancient, that on Yom Kippur, in the Musaf service of Yom Kippur, we actually reenact 
the service of the high priest in the temple. We reenact what was done, which is very unusual. We virtually never have such a thing in our service, which is a reenactment. So that's called the Avodah. In the Musaf, in the middle of the Musaf, first the Chazan asked permission to pray. Ochil Rakel asked permission. Um, and of course, the Avodah is only during the repetition of the Amida. It's not like the Vidui. The Vidui is recited both privately and, 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 and communally. It's both privately and communally. But the Avodah is only done communally. And we actually reenact it. And what's interesting is that first it, it begins by describing the creation of the world and how sin entered the world and all the mistakes. And it comes down that there's one person who bears upon himself, who carries the responsibility to atone for the world, actually, who enters the Holy of Holies. And it speaks there of three confessions. The Torah only mentioned one confession, but the rabbinic understanding, the Mishnah, which is, lies behind the Avoda, as we find it in the liturgy, has the priest confessing twice on his own sacrifice. He brings his own sacrifice. And he confesses for himself and his immediate family, and he goes back and confesses a second time for the priests, and the third time for all of Israel. So there are three confessions. If you remember the Avoda in the Ashkenazic rite, the Kachaya Omer, and this is what the priest would say, Ana Hashem, Ana, Ana means please, maybe it means more than just please, please, Devout, woe unto me, and please, honor Hashem, kaperna, please atone for our sins. And then it continues with a very strange, honor Vashem. Oh, please, Vashem, with your name, Vashem, atone for us. What does it mean, honor Vashem? Remember, Rabbi Soloveitchik many years ago had a very interesting drasha. He went on a certain path. I'm taking a different path. But he asked the question, what does it mean honor Bashem? I believe what honor Bashem means actually is the following. After the story of the golden calf, Moshe prays for the people. Moshe pleads with God, come with us. Moshe wants God to dwell amongst the people. That means the Mishkan. But Moses has already broken the tablets. So we we can't build a Mishkan without the tablets, and the tablets are the work of God. Moshe pleads with God to walk amongst us in our midst. God says to Moshe, I can't, because we're going to fight. People are stubborn, and I'll end up, we'll end up fighting, and it won't go well for the people if you fight with God. I'll destroy them. So better this way. You take, I'll send a messenger, go to the land, milk and honey, but I'm, I'm not going with you. And the people are very unhappy with that. And the rest of that chapter, chapter 33, in the beginning of 34, how does Moshe enable God to dwell amongst the people? And finally, Moshe pleads with God, and God reveals to Moshe the attributes of mercy. Hashem, Hashem, el rachum v'chanun, in chapter 34 of Exodus. And when Moses is taught these attributes of mercy, vayimahem Moshe, Moshe, hurry, bow down. And Moshe said to God, if I find favor in your eyes, God walk amongst us. Chapter 34. For the people are stubborn. 
stiff-necked. The ulchatanu, and you will forgive our sins, abonot chataim, and make us your inheritance. So all the commentaries and the translators are bothered. The fact that the people are stiff-necked was the reason God said to Moshe, I can't walk amongst them because we'll fight. So what is Moshe saying to God? Walk amongst us for they are stiff-necked. So some translations translate the word key, not for, but rather despite. Okay, they're stiff-necked, whatever, we'll deal with that later. Despite the fact, sometimes key means despite. But the plain meaning of key typically is not despite, it's because. And I believe what Moshe is saying is something else, which I think is central to Yom Kippur and central to the whole service, which is, it's true, says Moshe to God. If you walk amongst us in the full panoply, in your fullness, then that can't work. The God who was the God of truth, whose seal is truth. God's seal is truth. That's that tradition. The seal is truth. God's essential nature is integrity and truth. God employs mercies. When Rosh Hashanah, we say, let your mercies overcome who you are. Abraham overcame his basic nature of kindness to do your bidding at the binding of Isaac. You overcome your basic nature. Your basic nature is to be true. It's emes, truth, that's your seal. Over, employ your mercies. What Moshe is saying to God in the Golden Calf episode is, yes, if you go with us in the fullness of, 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 of the divine, we can't survive. And therefore, I want you to accompany us. The God who accompanies us in the Mishkan is not the full God. You have to compromise. You have to limit yourself, God. Limit yourself to Hashem, Hashem, El-Rachum, B'chanun, Erech, Apayim. Rav Chesed, Ve'emet. And Emet doesn't even mean truth. It means true kindness. Come with us as the God of mercies, and then the very Mishkan itself becomes the vehicle for atonement. And in my view, that's what it means when we say in the prayer, Anav Hashem. Because the Mishkan in the, in the Bible is also often called Shem. Shem Hashem in the Bible is another term for the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle itself becomes the vehicle of atonement, provided that the tabernacle is not defiled. So the priest on Yom Kippur has the twofold task of, first of all, purifying the Mishkan, the Chiperat HaKodesh, and then to remove the sins. But purifying because the Purification comes through the very tabernacle itself. That's honor of Hashem. So that's the idea of Yom Kippur. Honor of Hashem with the very tabernacle itself. So the Vidu, of course, we are reenacting, as it were, the service of the high priest. And that is the, that's done communally. That's not done privately. We actually see ourselves in that temple. That's the practice by many to actually bow down as they would have done in the temple. When they heard God's name, they would fall down to the ground. The idea of the actual reenactment, we only have this on Yom Kippur, maybe Hoshana Rabbah, to actually reenact the ceremony. Let me conclude, there's so much more to say here, obviously. Let me just conclude with one last thought about confession. Give me five minutes. All of Yom Kippur, there were two confessions. There's the short confession of Hoshana, and there's the long confession of Alchet except when you get to the last service of Yom Kippur. When it comes to Ne'ilah, there's no Achet. And instead of Achet, 
there is the central prayer of Ne'ivah. The Talmud says, according to one view, that's all you have to say. According to one view in the Talmud, you don't even pray the Amidah. You just say a short paragraph. We, that's not our practice. We have the whole service, but within that service, you have the core paragraph, which begins with the words, God, you extend your hand to the sinners. In that paragraph, it's followed by a second paragraph, which begins, and in that paragraph, which talks about the God who assists us in repentance, who assists the sinner. And in that paragraph, it only mentions one sin. Al-Khayr mentions a million different things. The Vidui of Ne'ilo mentions only one sin. Ruman nechdal me'oshek yodenu. In order that we stop the theft of our hands. That's all it says. Stop the theft of our hands. But where is that phrase coming from? Ruman nechdal me'oshek yodenu. The great confession of Ne'ilo. We should stop this and you will receive us with love. So this plays off another one of the highlights of the Yom Kippur service, which is in the afternoon service of Yom Kippur, we read a Haftorah. And it's not the normal Haftorah of a fast day, it's the book of Jonah. Maftir Yonah. Yonah is the prophet unwilling to prophesy. He was sent to Nineveh, the evil empire. And he doesn't want to go. He wants them to be destroyed. And when he gets there, he says a few words. In 40 days, Ninveh is overturned. And the king gets off his throne. And the people of Ninveh get, are all repenting. And the king of Ninveh says, we have to do the right thing. Maybe God will see what we do, not what we say, what we do. And they get rid of the Hamas Asher B'Kapayem, the theft which is in their hands. So the Ne'iwa service actually, the Ne'iwa service actually recalls many other pieces of the 10 days of repentance of Slichot, but it specifically recalls Maftu Yonah. And that's a very interesting story because the great story of repentance that we recall in the book, in this prayer of Ne'iwa, it's not about the Jewish people altogether. It's about the evil empire. It's about Ninveh and about the prophet who was unwilling to go. And God insists, Jonah doesn't want to go. Jonah is very upset. But God insists. What it means is essentially misusing our gifts. Everybody has a set of gifts, possibilities, each according to our own ability. And uh, the question is, are we doing the best we can do with what we have? Everybody has a different set of gifts. That's Luman Nechta Meoshek Yodin. And Jonah actually, and we recall the story of Jonah in the Elah, in the great confession of the Elah. And Jonah was upset with God. Jonah doesn't like it. And I'll just conclude with the following observation. His name is Jonah ben Amitai, Jonah the son of truth. And what Jonah objects to is, what Jonah says to God is, it's not true. In fact, when Jonah recalls God's attributes, he leaves out the word amen altogether. This is not true. These are not really penitent. These are they're going to sin again. And, and furthermore, how do you erase the past? Two very good questions. And the question when you read the Jonah book, story of Jonah is, what is God's answer, actually? It's very unclear what God answers Jonah. We understand the question. And the 
the liturgy voices the question for all of us. Do we really change on Yom Kippur? Can we really forgive? Can we or should we forget the past? But what does God say to the question? It's not true. It's false. God's seal is truth, right? It's all about truth. It's God's basic nature. I, I believe what God is saying is that there's a different truth here. There's a truth about the human condition, says God. I created a world. If we're going to judge them by my standards of truth, we'll have no world. Because we're not divine. We are all flawed and failed beings to some degree. We do the best we can to correct. We don't accept that. We try to correct it. But God recognizes a different truth. And that truth about our own failings and weaknesses, I think should lead us in the same direction that it leads God, which is to, uh, to understand or to take into account at least human failing, human weakness, and human error. The God of Yom Kippur, the God of the liturgy on Yom Kippur is Hashem Hashem Kelrachum Bechalim. That's God's name. Moses says, what is your name? God is a simple answer to Moses in chapter 34. My name is Rachum Bechano. That's my name. And Moshe says, that is the name. That is the name that is found in your temple. The temple is the temple. The place in which God's name is to be found. What name? I suggest Rachum Bechano. So Yom Kippur is not just about God the way God sees the world. It's an invitation for us to look at the world differently after Yom Kippur. To hold ourselves accountable, of course, and to hold each other accountable, of course, and to speak the truth, which is God's seal, but to understand and have some feeling for the fact that we are all incomplete and uh, imperfect beings. And we do the best we can to, to move forward and to correct our mistakes. I wish all of you a Gemara Chatima Tova, meaningful Yom Kippur. As far as my classes are concerned, after the holidays, we'll go back to the uh, story of Breshit, story of Yaakov and Yitzchak. Hope we can do those texts justice. They're amazing. And we have many other classes as well. And uh, I also want everybody to look into what Drisha is doing in the States and in Israel, especially our yeshiva which raises the bar for women in a way that has never existed before. And hopefully produce women who down the road will be seen as peers, equals to the men, and be able to make decisions about community direction, about community practice, halacha. If that someday happens, I think many of the problems that we think are unsolvable today will suddenly find solutions. That's, I think, an important path. And I think that's what Jerisha is trying to accomplish in Israel. And of course, we have our classes here as well. And I invite all of you to participate. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Rabbi Sober, can I make a plug for everybody on this uh, Zoom to come back at one o'clock and join yes. You meet me too. Um, that was the next thing, right? Well, okay. you know gonna... One o'clock, we have the annual Rudolph Memorial Lecture. Um, Sima is... Uh, one of the family in Surrey, and uh, they've been very centrally involved in Jewish for many, many years. Uh, the topic is a very rele relevant one, Satan, the understanding of Satan. Our teacher is uh, Yael Leibowitz. I'm looking forward to that. I'll be there myself. 
and invite all of you to uh, attend. It's at one o'clock, one to two. Thank you for that. Thank you, Rabbi Silver, as always, for a wonderful class and to everyone else for being here and participating actively in Drisha's learning community. As has already been mentioned, please come back at 1 p.m. We would love to see you again. I, I'm excited for it. It sounds fascinating. And we hope you are sealed for a good year, a healthy year, and a year in which you can continue to engage in deep Torah study with our learning community. Be well, everyone. Thank you.